This lecture for the Book Arts Press was delivered on Monday, the 9th of April, 1990, by Mary Clappinson, Keeper of Western Manuscripts in the Bodleian Library, Oxford University. Her topic, Keeping Western Manuscripts in the Bodleian Library. Good evening. Next Monday, Ian Willison on the humanities, past and future or words very much to that effect. Ian uh, has, on rare occasions, given a very long talk here, but he's never given a boring one. And he was talked to after the long one. On the 30th of April, Richard Sharp uh, from the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, Oxford Dictionary, Oxford Medieval Dictionary, but now something else as well. Reader in Diplomatics at Oxford. Does that uh, mean that he ceases to be assistant editor of the Oxford Medieval Dictionary? Richard Sharp, soon to be reader in Diplomatics at Oxford University, speaking on the problems of new authors getting published in Angevin, England, followed on the 7th of May with Rosamond McKittrick from Newnham College, Cambridge, speaking essentially on the problems of getting published as a new author in 9th century France. I remember Nicholas Barker saying once that he supposed that people who really knew something about 9th century Europe would agree that his knowledge was only the better sort of journalism on the subject. Well, Rosamond is the kind of person that he was referring to. So that is the array of treats for the next month or so. Beginning tonight with the keeper of printed books, with the keeper of manuscripts, I'm sorry. <laughs> My cold is progressing, but has not yet progressed. Three or four years ago, we had Mary Paul Pollard speaking from the library at Trinity College, Dublin. She wanted to talk about the early printed books at TCD, and I said that you cannot come to Columbia on your first visit and talk about the library at Trinity College without at least mentioning the Book of Kells. So she said that she would speak mostly on early printed books, but would mention the Book of Kells. And she began her lecture as follows. The Book of Kells was printed by the monks in the quaint little town of that name. Having mentioned the Book of Kells, I would now like to talk about some of the other printed books. <laughs> so my comment about Mary Clappinson's duties at Bodley are to be taken in this spirit. Mary Clappinson, the keeper of Western manuscripts at Bodleian Library, talking about just that. It's a pleasure to have her at Columbia. Thanks, Terry. Well, I, I begin. Does that sound right? Yeah. Yes, it's a bit... That's better. More my height. Uh, I begin by saying just how delighted I am uh, to be here at Columbia this evening, how grateful I am to Terry and to the Friends of the Book Arts Press for making it possible, um, and how glad I am to see you here. Before I tackle my main theme, which is the administration of the manuscript, not the printed book, collection in the Bodleian, uh, 
I thought a few facts and figures about the library uh, to help set the scene for those of you who don't know it. The Bodleian is first and foremost the library of the University of Oxford. We always talk in terms of budgets nowadays. I give you an idea of how much it is a university library if I say that 96% of its annual budget comes from the university. Its annual budget is around five and a half million pounds. The university has received that sum um, in its grant from central government. The library houses around five and a half million volumes of printed books, somewhere in the region of 200,000 manuscript volumes, over a million sheet maps, around 300,000 microforms, all stored on 84 miles of shelving in nine separate buildings scattered around Oxford. We're always rather proud of the fact that about 17% of our stock of printed books is directly available to readers on the open shelves um, of our 24 reading rooms. Those reading rooms provide desks for over 2,100 readers. The rest of the book stock is in closed access stacks. We issue about 15,000 readers' tickets each year and the whole operation is run by the equivalent of 330 full-time staff, of whom between 65 and 70 are professional. I think, actually, that's, that's the statistic put out uh, by the administration. I don't like to admit how many of those posts are being held vacant at the moment. 70 professional posts, anyway. The university, which is served by this library, is made up of 35 colleges, it has a resident undergraduate body of around 10,000 students, um, graduates about 3,500. The university's annual expenditure is in the region of 130 million pounds, and the colleges about half that again. Back to the Bodleian. The Bodleian is one of six libraries of legal deposit in Great Britain. More than half of our annual intake of published material comes as a result of copyright deposit. The rest comes through purchase, somewhere around 30%, and donation and exchange, which together account for another 15%. It is in all but name a national library. It's the second largest library in the UK, and of course it serves a much wider constituency than Oxford University. More than half the new readers admitted each year are not members of the university. Indeed, a noticeable number of them are not UK citizens either. For the Bodleian is an international research centre attracting scholars from all over the world to study its unique collections of early printed books, oriental books and manuscripts, and then, my concern this evening, Western manuscripts. I guess anyone coming uh, from a library that you didn't know could provide those sort of statistics. The numbers would, would vary, uh, but the outline would be the same. What makes the Bodleian different from most other libraries is its age. I took all those statistics, I don't carry them in my head, uh, I, I took them from the library fact sheet. Uh, it devotes almost half of its printed surface to a brief chronology, which gives you an idea of how our history looms so large uh, in, in our ideas about ourselves. Now that brief chronology starts with an approximate date of 1320, which I think is a rather optimistic reckoning of, uh, for the foundation of the first university library in Oxford. Rather worryingly, the last date on this chronology is 1975, 
um, which confirms a widespread suspicion that the Bodleian may be having difficulty coming to terms with the present. <laughs> but the real date to notice is 1488, which was when the building, which is still at the heart of our operations, Duke Humphrey's Library, was completed. So, two years ago, back in 1988, we celebrated our quincentenary. We glossed over the fact that there was a, uh, what the BBC would have called an interruption to service uh, of 40 odd years in the second half of the 16th century. Our continuous history dates from 1602, courtesy of our re-founder, Sir Thomas Bodley. Now, of course, the library that we run today bears little resemblance to the one he established then. Then it consisted of one room, stocked with 2,000 books, employing only one man, the first keeper of the library, Thomas James, with the assistance, or as Thomas James no doubt thought, the interference of Thomas Bodley. But our past has shaped our present, and our methods of acquiring, preserving, and making available our collections are, as I hope will emerge in the course of my talk, profoundly affected by the almost 400 years of history behind us. Just the basic fact that we are not a lending library, um, but purely a reference library, dates back to the regulations which Thomas Bodley drew up for us in 1602. And it was from the beginning Bodley's wish that his library should serve not only Oxford University, but the whole Republic of the Learned which is exactly what we're still doing now, 400 years later. Another very obvious inheritance from our past is our buildings. We run, or sometimes we feel we try to run, a modern library system in buildings which on the central site date from the 15th, 17th and 18th century. Buildings which do not readily lend themselves to changing use, and buildings which are all part of the nation's architectural heritage and as such are protected by national legislation as well as by local bylaws. Just to give you an example here from our current preoccupations, we've had uh, problems with security in one of our main buildings, uh, the Radcliffe Camber. Increasing number of undesirable people come into the building, an increasing number of desirable books go out of the building. <laughs> now, the building doesn't readily lend itself to... Uh, having a security guard on the door. Um, it's very difficult to get to in, install a security check. So we started discussing ways and means of putting a security guard on the door. But our suggestions at a very, very early stage were referred through the City Planning Authority to the Secretary of State for the Environment, you know, a member of the Cabinet, no less, and he straight away vetoed the slightest alteration to this structure, which everyone regards as the symbol of the university. Now, that's just an example of how what is a great inheritance from the past can also be a bit of a millstone around our neck when it comes to running a library in the 1990s. Well into this century, uh, the Bodleian was run as a single unit, uh, with Bodley's librarian at its head. It's only comparatively recently uh, that the administration was divided into departments. And I'm always rather pleased and proud to say that the Department of Western Manuscripts was the first to establish a distinct identity, emerging as a separate department in 1927. But of course, from the very beginning, the library collected manuscripts. 
Of those 2,000 volumes that were on the shelves uh, in the care of Thomas James in 1602, 300 were manuscripts. And the results of 388 years now of collection development are holdings of some 190,000 manuscript volumes, boxes, files. I'm always very tempted to gloss figures like that because I know that we all count very different units when we're trying to give an indication of our collections. Um, Perhaps simplest just to say that the unit that we traditionally have counted in the Bodleian is the shelf-marked volume. Uh, This is a, a reflection of the way that I think in common with quite a lot of libraries, we've always tried to pretend that manuscripts were books in disguise, uh, that we've collected papers together, bound them, put them on the plate, on the shelf, so we could store them like printed books, count them like printed books. Um, With the problem now that I feel when I say 190,000 manuscripts, it sounds a bit small compared with libraries over here. But each of those volumes may well just be one discrete item, or it could be as many as 100 or 200 uh, separate pieces. Just one more definition before I get down to the main thing. Um, People usually ask me, what do you mean Western? Um, Western in the Bodleian is defined in terms of language, not of subject matter. It distinguishes manuscripts in Western as opposed to Eastern or Oriental languages. It has nothing to do, uh, perhaps it's only people in Oxford who would think that it had anything to do with the ancient division of Western Christendom from the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, nor has it uh, anything to do with the much more recent and fast disappearing division uh, between the communist and the non-communist states of Europe. In fact, the bulk of the manuscripts in my care are in English, Latin and Greek, um, French, German, Italian, Spanish, run pretty close second and then there's very small groups of manuscripts in a great variety of other languages Um, some of my favourites are um, careful I'm not going to offend anyone here, Basque they run from Basque to Welsh uh, taking Catalan, Cornish and Manx on the way it would as I was preparing this talk I thought now this is the point at which I give them an indication of the range of the western manuscripts which are kept in the Bodleian But actually, that's much easier said than done. Let me do the easy bit first, date span. That's comparatively straightforward. The earliest dated manuscript in my care is a papyrus containing the revenue laws of Ptolemy Philadelphus. Um, I didn't realize until I arrived here and stayed with friends how particularly uh, relevant it was uh, that the earliest manuscript in my care to be mentioned now should be detailed regulations for the collection of taxes. (laughs) all those taxes that you're filling in your returns. Uh, But these, in my care, were revised in the year 259 to 258 before Christ. The most recent papers uh, are papers of the 1980s, so that gives you the date span. In between those two dates, uh, almost every form of the written word, uh, ancient and medieval codices of all sorts, Bibles, illustrated psalters, missals, and books of hours, with particular strengths in English, Italian, and Byzantine illumination, works of the classical writers of Greece and Rome, sermons and theology, cartularies and chronicles, manuscripts of English literature of all periods, from the Anglo-Saxon to the modern, antiquarian and topographical manuscripts, family and estate records, ancient charters, modern title deeds, 
Papers of statesmen, administrators, journalists, scientists, academics, novelists, poets of the 19th and 20th centuries. Also in my care, music, drawings, photographs and maps. Now with this range of types and formats and that range of dates, we can usually reckon to produce primary source material for studies of all the humanities and most of, a few of the sciences as well. The department that was formed in 1927 was headed by a keeper who had charge of these wide-ranging collections and was directly responsible to Bodley's librarian for their upkeep. If I'm allowed a little diversion here, it's very tempting to speculate on the reasons for the choice of the title keeper. Uh, it conjures up a picture of a zoo rather than a, uh, rather than a collection of manuscripts. But I think um, what Sir Thomas Bodley was doing when he called his first librarian the keeper of the library uh, was echoing the title of the great officers of state, uh, the keeper of the great seal, um, the keeper of the mint and the like. Sometime, probably in the 18th century, the head of the institution came to be known not as the keeper of the library but as Bodley's librarian, and the title keeper was dropped. Checking in that uh, that great work, the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, I thought of, found it mildly interesting to see that in general usage, the word librarian only comes into use in the early 18th century, and the word that it replaces is library keeper. Uh, now, I have no evidence for my next bit of speculation, but I like to speculate that the title keeper may have found less favour in academic circles from the late 17th century, when it <coughs> came to be widely used of a man who kept a mistress. Um, hence Dryden's play, The Kind Keeper, <laughs> and his reference in 1678 to our crying sin of keeping, <laughs> which got some nice connotations. But be that as it may, the original meaning of keeping in the sense of maintaining, preserving, guarding, has today, as it had in 1602, much of relevance uh, to those who are responsible for libraries. Sir Francis Bacon's much-quoted reference to the Bodleian in 1605 as an ark to save learning from the deluge uh, is very apt in this context. It's very much quoted. Uh, the most recent time I saw it uh, was in the subtitle to an article in The Economist on the cost of maintaining the world's great libraries. Everyone borrows this and forgets that it was actually the Bodleian uh, that it was first, uh, was first referred to in this way. But it neatly sums up the word keeper arc, neatly sum up the custodial aspects of rescuing and preserving manuscripts to ensure their survival. Well, keeping these vast and varied collections is a fascinating task and a complex one. And I'm not going to try this evening to cover the whole range of, of what I do. I thought for the sake of clarity, I'd concentrate on three aspects of the work. First, preserving the collections inherited from the past. Second, making them available to the present generation. And third, adding to them for future generations. And it's very pleasing to find that all three have their counterparts in definitions of the verb to keep in the Oxford English Dictionary. Well, first, keeping in its most obvious sense of holding, caring for, and preserving. To the public at large, and to many scholars too, Western manuscripts in the Bodleian are synonymous with medieval manuscripts. Understandably so, 
when they include so many illuminated or decorated manuscripts, the most rich and visually attractive part of the library's inheritance from the past. Each manuscript contains within its covers a whole gallery of medieval pictures. Opening any one of them reveals a wealth of images which, compared with medieval paintings exposed for centuries on walls or on wood, are absolutely breathtaking in their freshness and their clarity. I'm going to cheat a little here and take as an example um, one, one manuscript uh, in the care of my department, which is really of world rank. But it will illustrate both the attractions of the physical object and the pressures on this particular inheritance from the past. Uh, manuscript Bodley 264 uh, is a great 14th century storybook. It's lavishly illustrated. It's a Flemish copy of the Romance of Alexander, which early on in its life crossed the English Channel and came into England, where around 1400 was added a copy of Marco Polo's Travels. That copy of Marco Polo's Travels is prefaced by, I think, the most famous and certainly the most reproduced illumination in our collections, that of Marco Polo leaving an easily identifiable Venice as he set sail for the Far East. Now, art historians, of course, find this and the other manuscripts like it, invaluable evidence for studies of the development of medieval art. But they are by no means the only people who wish to study this particular manuscript. A single page of the Romance of Alexander will attract the attention of a host of scholars in a whole variety of disciplines. Some will be interested just in the text itself, and the fact that this is one of the most lavishly illustrated copies is uh, not of any great importance to them. Others will seek to study the iconography of the Alexander legend, displayed in the very fine miniatures and initials. While the scenes of everyday life in medieval Flanders, which fill the lower margins, uh, are a mine of important information for every aspect of medieval life, so that people interested in costume, in architecture, um, anything through metalworking, musical instruments, folk dancing, ornithology, they'll turn to the Romance of Alexander for evidence and illustration of how these things worked in the Middle Ages. So there's 101 reasons for requesting access to this one manuscript. But if all these requests were granted, the manuscript would quickly disintegrate through overuse. Now that, of course, is a particularly uh, spectacular example, but the dilemma is there for all the manuscripts in our care. How do we reconcile the conflicting claims of preservation and availability? How do we ensure that the manuscripts as objects are protected while the scholarly demands for information are satisfied? Well, for our medieval manuscripts, in common with many other libraries, but I'm afraid less systematically than most, we do seek to provide substitutes for the originals wherever possible. Uh, wherever possible, we provide microfilms or fiche ourselves, and for the major treasures, we actively seek commercial firms to publish fine facsimile editions, facsimile editions which will be of a good enough quality to satisfy most scholars' need um, and a substitute for the manuscript. The originals, then, are only made available in very measured doses um, to the general public in occasional exhibitions, in-house or on loan, and to established scholars who can make a strong case for access to the original. 
Thanks to the pioneering work of Dr. Bill Hassel in the Bodleian in the 1950s and 60s, we can provide substitutes too for all the illustrations in some 3,000 of our illuminated manuscripts. He created a fantastic system of 35 millimeter color slides and film strips, well over 30,000 images now. Um, he developed alongside them a series of finding aids, descriptive lists and iconographic index, which provide access to the illuminations from a whole variety of standpoints, very much used not, not just by picture researchers, but used a lot by them, also by scholars and teachers, by local historians and the general public, all of whom can get access to these images without having to, having to handle the fragile originals so that anyone interested in all the representations of, say, St. Catherine, um, or one of my favorite cats, um, can just go to the index, um, take, uh, can consult the index, find all the images that they require, um, pick out the slides uh, from the folders, um, and get without any reference to the original manuscripts. This sounds a pretty Byzantine way of making these things available, but it works. Um, the reason why it works is that there's still two people on the staff who were involved in its creation. One of the things that at the moment uh, we're pursuing is the possibility of combining all our literally shoeboxes of index cards with um, our folders of slides um, into some form of optical disk um, and interactive computer access. Uh, what's stopping us, of course, is funding, uh, but it's one of those things which I think will be a very interesting way of taking something which in the 1950s we pioneered and making best use of the new technology. So we have there a pretty good way of protecting the illuminated manuscripts from excessive use, or at least unnecessary use. What we do lack in the Bodleian is any system for protecting the real strength of our medieval collections. Not the illuminated manuscripts, but the thousands of text manuscripts, really the bread and butter of medieval scholarship, which are constantly in demand. The undoubted interest and importance of these texts in our medieval collections is further enhanced by the large number of them which are still in their original bindings. And this is a strength which we always like to point out, actually grew out of weakness. An awful lot of private collections of medieval manuscripts in the UK were actually rebound by their wealthy owners in the 17th and early 18th century. It's a period which witnessed wholesale rebinding of a lot of the manuscripts of the well-endowed Oxford colleges. Now, the Bodleian, then as now, was an impoverished institution, and thank goodness we could never afford to rebind our medieval manuscripts, with the result that we have a wealth of material, and more by accident than design, you might say, a wealth of material for studies of the structure of the medieval book. But you can see that that's an evidence which is at risk if it is used repeatedly, or worse still, carelessly. And it's an area where it's very difficult to provide any substitute because no microfilm microfiche is going to provide a suitable, uh, adequate substitute in the area, that area of research. There's another factor which I think, um, in common with other public libraries in the UK, ha has had an enormous effect on the way that we administer our collections. We have a very long tradition of making our collections available, whatever their age. 
whether they're ancient, medieval, or modern. Our policy is defined in terms of access rather than security, um, in terms of use rather than preservation. Bodley's library was, from its earliest days, known as the public library. Uh, we predate the British Library by 150 years, so what we're fond of doing as Bodley is actually putting the emphasis slightly differently, not the public library, but the public library. <laughs> um, successive generations of keepers have seen their role as holding the collections for public use. Then again, both the age and the size of the Bodleian have played their part in shaping our policy. The majority of our most used manuscript collections, the medieval and the early modern, were accumulated in the period between 1600 and the early 1800s. They weren't bought at 20th century prices um, by the library or by its benefactors. And I know some would argue that as a result, we don't value them as we ought. Now, of course, we don't ignore the implications of the ever-increasing market value of our collections, but that's not, in a sense, the primary factor in formulating a policy on access. But if I'm allowed just a little demonstration here of how we do, sometimes market value does, does affect our policy. It was actually the astronomical sum fetched by the 1661 commonplace book um, of the philosopher John Locke at an auction here in New York last November which prompted me to undertake a probably long overdue review uh, of the rules governing access to our extensive collection of Locke manuscripts. But the price a collector is prepared to pay for a manuscript can't be the deciding factor in the formulating of policy for access by scholars to manuscripts which will never, never we hope, come on the market. The great size of our collections has also noticeably influenced the way in which we make the manuscripts available. Collections as large as ours may include dozens of copies of the same text, and our policy on access to these dozen copies is likely to be freer than if we only had one. The effects of our inherited and much cherished attitude of encouraging use when combined with the enormous expansion of research in recent years, are only really now coming home to us. It stands to reason um, that scholars wishing, for example, to study, uh, what should we say, um, the 15th century translation of the Bible by John Wycliffe, will gravitate towards a library like the Bodleian, which holds dozens of copies of that text. Once in the library, um, it's only natural that the scholar will wish to see every copy we hold. So the demand for each individual Wycliffe Bible in Bodley will be increased rather than diminished by the fact that it is one of many rather than the only one. And that's a factor which I think we're only just beginning to realize. Times, as I say, are changing. The increasing use of manuscript collections <coughs> since the Second World War has made us painfully aware of the effects of repeated handling on bindings, on paper, on illuminations, and on text. The most desperate evidence of wear and tear is to be seen not so much in our medieval manuscripts. Vellum is actually pretty strong. Uh, but in our collections of 17th century state papers. And these are an unrivaled source for the study of English history in the 17th century, uh, probably the most turbulent century in our history. 
These papers were bound into volumes in the 18th century, and they've been relentlessly used by generations of historians, with the result that boards are now detached, pages loose, edges are torn and frayed, and in places the text is beginning to disappear. The conservation solution is simple. You take a volume, you disbind it, you deacidify the paper, you repair every leaf, uh, you replace uh, the, the pieces in fascicles of acid-free paper. But the resources to tackle hundreds of manuscripts in this way um, have, not, have yet to be found. I can see some of you thinking, what about preservation filming? Well, we have thought of that, and we are pursuing it, thanks actually to a, a major grant from the Mellon Foundation. Um, it's clearly a cheaper solution of a sort, but even that has to be accompanied by a measure of costly repair um, if the manuscripts are already, as alas, a lot of ours are, in a dilapidated condition. I don't want to paint too gloomy a picture here. The 1970s and 80s saw enormous improvements in our program of protective boxing of volumes and of repair to paper and bindings. The conditions in which we store the collections are vastly better than they were 20 or even 10 years ago. But as we enter the 1990s, we are having to face the fact that only a reduction in the amount of use the manuscripts get uh, will ensure their survival. So much then for preserving the manuscripts in our care. And you'll see I'm not suggesting that I've found answers. I'm really uh, putting forward the, the problems. But I think they're problems which we have in common with a lot of other libraries. It's not only the physical makeup of manuscripts which needs protecting. Often the, content of, uh, the contents of modern manuscripts may lead to a policy of reserving them, keeping them in the sense of withholding them from current use, which is another definition of keeping, which I found in the Oxford English Dictionary. The factors involved in formulating a policy of reserving manuscripts from use for a period of years are complex. The most straightforward one for us in Britain uh, is an obligation to observe the 30 years closed period on all official, that is, government papers. That sounds straightforward enough, but even that has caused us problems recently, as the def definition of official papers has been widened by our present government, and we find it more complicated than we used to, to be certain what our present government would term an official paper. We also have one other absolutely standard rule, is that all repositories, all public repositories, will close medical records for 50 or 100 years. But after those two straightforward regulations, um, public and private attitudes to the making available of information in less official recent records vary significantly. We have in the UK no statutory definition of freedom of information, and I think we're very much more concerned about what you would call invasion of privacy. In the Bodleian, we are prepared to protect the confidentiality of personal information in very recent papers uh, by reserving them from use. If the donor requests it, or we ourselves think that harm could be done to living persons by it coming into the public domain too soon. I know this is a very contentious area, and uh, by its nature, it's a rather difficult one for me to provide you with useful um, examples, or else I would be breaching confidentiality. Um, but... <laughs> 
let me, let me just try to give you a, a couple um, made suitably anonymous. Um, we bought last year a very interesting series of letters by a recently deceased English poet. We bought them from the woman to whom they were written. She, rather to my surprise, was content for them to be made available immediately. They were, to my way of thinking, pretty personal letters. But what the cataloging process revealed was references not to the relationship between these two people, but to living persons, uh, which could have caused a lot of pain if they were made available now. And so we took the initiative within the library and closed these letters from access for a number of years. So here we have the, not the donor, but the previous owner of these papers, not concerned about restricting access, but um, me in the library imposing a restriction. On the other hand, we don't accept long closure periods without question. Uh, a prestigious historical journal with strong Oxford connections re recently approached me, wishing to place its archives in the Bodleian subject to closure for a hundred years. Now, we all know... <laughs> I didn't pause quite long enough there for the joke to sink in. We all know that historians' comments on other historians' work can be intemperate. <laughs> and I'm glad to say that there's much of this in the files of this journal. But a hundred years did seem to me to be pretty ridiculous. So, after gently pointing out that if all manuscript evidence was to be withheld uh, from public use for a century, historians would still be waiting for the materials on which they could base their studies of the First World War, I negotiated a much reduced closure period and accepted the gift. So, uh, let me now turn to the second aspect of my job as keeper, the process of alerting the scholarly world to the existence and content of the manuscript collections in our care. Although this is only one aspect of making the manuscripts available, I'll concentrate on cataloguing here, partly uh, as a self-indulgence, uh, because it's an activity which occupied me for most of my professional life before I became head of department, but more seriously, because it is the pivot around which any manuscript department revolves. It's the basis of all reader service and reference work, and it should underpin any acquisitions policy. Cataloguing practice in a library as old as the Bodleian has varied enormously over the years. I'm just hoping I can see too many eyes glazing over as I mention cataloguing. I always wish there was another word <laughs> for this process uh, uh, to which we subject manuscripts in our care. Um, but anyway, uh, cataloguing in a library as old as the Bodleian has changed enormously over the years, and I think it's quite instructive uh, to look at the reasons for the diversity. I'll take as an example the two published general manuscript catalogues, um, uh, sorry, the two published general catalogues of the manuscript collections. The first is a series of 11 quarto volumes, published between 1845 and 1900. Notice the date span. Providing descriptions of each item in all of 8,000 manuscripts which made up the major collections acquired in the preceding two centuries. The detailed descriptions were accompanied by equally detailed indexes of persons, places, and subjects. 
The second general catalogue is the summary catalogue. It was begun in 1890. It adopts a much brisker approach. In seven volumes, it covers some 30,000 manuscripts, the manuscripts acquired between 1602 and 1916. It provides only basic summary descriptions. The first two volumes appeared in 1895 and 1897, which, considering it was started in 1890, was, was quite good going. A bit more delay set in, the next two volumes came out in 1905 and 1906. Then, a familiar story, the principal cataloguer moved up the hierarchy, became head of the institution, and real delays set in. First World War intervened, so that the next three volumes appeared in 1922, 1924, and 1937. Another World War again deprived the library of most of its professional staff, and it was only in 1953 that the catalogue volumes were completed and made usable uh, with an introductory volume and an index. Now, the switch from the detailed quarto to the summary catalogue in 1890 was the result of an interesting debate on the relative merits of producing detailed catalogues of small groups of important manuscripts and summary catalogues of the whole collections. I think it's a debate which must have been repeated in manuscript libraries all over the world and throughout the centuries. In the Bodleian in the late 19th century, it got bogged down, as such discussions often, perhaps usually do, in a clash of personalities. The librarian, E.W.B. Nicholson, was in favour of continuing the detailed quarto catalogues. He had the scholar's dislike of leaving a problem unsolved. He would have spent endless time over tiny details of each description. Left to his own devices, no catalogue would ever have been completed. Faulkner Madden, the senior sub-librarian, was convinced of the greater importance of overtaking the arrears of cataloguing and of producing a catalogue within the shortest possible time. Ironic when you think of that date span that it took for the summary catalogue. He argued that the summary catalogue is a necessity, the quarto catalogue a luxury. That Madden won the day and went on to produce the bulk of the summary catalogue himself was largely the result of what we would now call user demand um, and certainly the result of outside pressure. In the 1880s, the library's governing body of curators included two men whose own researches over a number of years had revealed the inadequacies of the Bodleian's manuscript catalogues. Very difficult people to have on your governing body the people that are actually using your collections. Then, in 1889, in what was momentarily um, a notorious incident, a German scholar, uh, the great Theodore Mommsen, published an account of the discovery, how librarians hate that word, the discovery in the Bodleian of a 5th century copy of Jerome's translation of the Chronicle of Eusebius. The Journal of Philology reported in 1890 how, and I quote, this one always makes me feel slightly cross, they reported, due to the unperfected arrangements for cataloguing manuscripts at the Bodleian, this most important manuscript has until recently escaped notice. 
Now, Oxford scholars in general, and the professor of Latin in particular, felt that the deficiencies of the library's cataloguing system had deprived them of the opportunity of making known to the world <laughs> the existence, and again I quote, in their own library, and that was the real, that was the thing that really hurt, in their own library, um, making known to the world the existence of what is still the earliest surviving non-biblical Latin manuscript in the UK. Now you can imagine how compelling an argument for a summary catalogue uh, this proved to be. The catalogers among you will appreciate the irony that it took actually 63 years from that debate to complete a catalogue which was initiated in order to provide a speedy survey of the whole collection. With the completion of the summary catalogue in 1953, the Bodleian switched to the production of more detailed catalogues, uh, catalogues of individual collections or of types of manuscripts. The result was a great variety of finding aids, some published and some not. Among the published ones were, for example, um, a hand list of the illuminated manuscripts, an index of the first lines of pre-1800 English poetry, a detailed catalogue of the Lyle collection of medieval manuscripts, a catalogue of the Lovelace collection of Locke manuscripts, an index of persons in Oxfordshire title deeds, and an index to the local probate records. That just gives you a little flavour of the variety of collections that we were cataloguing in the 50s and 60s and into the 70s. Now, no one of these catalogues bears much resemblance to any of the others, but what they all do is that they reflect the perceived needs of scholars in vastly differing disciplines. Now, all were share another thing in common, they were all exceedingly slow to produce, though none quite as slow as the great calendar of the Clarendon State Papers, a catalogue which produced a summary of the contents of all 12,000 documents in the State Papers of the Earl of Clarendon, who was chief advisor to King Charles II, which is one of the great 17th century uh, collections in our care. Now, this calendar, this detailed catalogue, took five volumes over 3,000 pages of print. The first volume appeared in 1869 and the last in 1970. <laughs> Not a timescale that many of us can afford to see repeated. Other finding aids produced in the last 30 years remain unpublished, and we have on the shelves in Duke Humphrey's reading room indexes of, for example, manorial records, in kippets of medieval texts, topographical prints and photographs, 17th and 18th century literary correspondence, and largest of all, an index of Charles, alas, inaccessible to the world of scholarship beyond our doors. More widely available are the products of our principal cataloguing efforts in the late 60s and early 70s, descriptive catalogues and detailed indexes of many of our 20th century collections, typed in-house, then duplicated and circulated by the National Register of Archives. We aimed, and still aim in these finding aids, um, to index right down to the piece level. As a result, the indexes have grown massively in size um, and the descriptive text has shrunk, a reflection of the increasing importance of indexes as a more flexible means of access to information in manuscripts, especially modern manuscripts. 
By 1975, concern within the department over the backlog of uncatalogued miscellaneous manuscripts coincided with a demand from outside the library for a published catalogue of manuscripts acquired since 1916, the terminal date, you may recall, for accessions of manuscripts described in Madden's summary catalogue. I put this uh, in a non-personal sense, but actually it was me who was set to work by my predecessor, David Vasey. Work began on a continuation of the summary catalogue, this time omitting the medieval manuscripts, which were deemed to need a very different type of cataloguing. We estimated that it would take us 12 years to produce the catalogue. Final proofs are being checked at the moment. History has repeated itself, except that this time we are, so far, three rather than 30 years behind schedule. Nevertheless, concentration on the production of a general catalogue has been accompanied by an alarming increase in the backlog of uncatalogued acquisitions of the 15 years it took to produce the general catalogue. Now, the variety of forms that these Bodleian manuscript catalogues have taken is a reflection of the great variety of the manuscripts in our collections. It's also a response to the various ways that scholars pursuing different types of research wish to use the collections. But in the last analysis, it is also a clear indication of the fluctuating resources of money and therefore of staff available to the department. The quarto catalogues of the 19th century and the detailed specialist catalogues and calendars of the 1950s and 1960s were abandoned, not because they were unsatisfactory, I mean, they were and continue to be tremendously useful, but they were discontinued because the library could no longer afford to sustain them. It's somehow reassuring to me that this was true in the 1880s when the average number of manuscripts acquired each year by the Bodleian was a mere 108. This century, the rate of acquisition has increased enormously, as has the use of the collections. And this last decade, the staff available to catalogue new accessions has been drastically reduced. We actually enter the 1990s with just over half the professional staff that the department employed in the 1970s. We are, at the moment, only six plus the keeper. Faced with diminishing resources and increasing demand, we have clearly to look for a different way of fulfilling our responsibility to produce catalogues of the manuscripts in our care. We have to break out of the time-consuming and costly process of preparing catalogues for conventional printing. Now, in common with colleagues all over the world, we look to automation for a partial solution, at least, to some of these problems. Now, I'm not going to presume to continue that train of thought. It is to see some of the various possibilities in practice that I'm visiting American libraries this month. I turn instead to the third and last aspect of the job of a custodian of a large manuscript collection, the task of adding to the collection for the benefit of present and future generations. And I was delighted to see that this aspect, too, is reflected in another, although admittedly obsolete, dictionary definition of keeping. Did you know that to keep can be to seize, to snatch, to intercept, <laughs> or less aggressively, to take in, to receive, or to watch for? Now, keepers of Western manuscripts in the 20th century inherited the results of 300 years of collection development. Holdings of manuscripts which were vast in extent and infinitely varied in content. 
They did not inherit any clearly defined acquisitions policy as they sought to come to terms with the changing conditions of their own day. The increasing quantity of manuscripts coming on the market, the increasing size of modern archives, limitations on space to store, staff to process, and funds to purchase. All this in the context of escalating market prices, competition from libraries abroad, and the proliferation of local and specialist repositories in the UK. Clearly, some policy of selection had to be established. Against this background, a policy of building on strengths or restricting acquisitions to material which related closely to existing holdings was formulated and continues to be applied. Faced with the need to select, it makes sense to concentrate resources on areas where the collections are already strong. For by and large, the scholarly community is best served by the accumulation of like with like in any given repository. It has to be said, though, that Bodleian collections are, as a result of our great age, strong in so many areas that a policy of building on strengths is scarcely restrictive when I come to formulating an acquisitions policy. In practice, what restricts our collection policy, on purchases at least, is availability of funds, or rather, I'm tempted to think nowadays, the lack of them. We acquire manuscripts in much the way that anyone else does when we're seeking to purchase. We check through booksellers and auctioneers' catalogues to identify items which fit our existing holdings. But the fit has to be very precise nowadays for us to look twice. The determining factor is then price. If it is low, purchase depends on the balance in the budget the library allocates to the manuscript department each year. If it is high, we look and look quickly to grant giving bodies for support. And in my experience, only those applications which convincingly argue that the proposed purchase fits, that's the key word, fits, with existing collections have any chance of success. Perhaps just a couple of quick examples here to demonstrate my point. In 1986, we were offered for a large sum 10 leaves of a not very exciting 14th century vernacular catechism. We bought them, despite the high price, because they were physically part of a manuscript which had come into the library in the collection of Francis Douse in 1834, but had been detached from it in the late 18th century. Now, you can't look for a closer fit than that. <laughs> but when, late last year, a similar but complete manuscript appeared in an auction sale catalogue, we were unable even to attempt to buy it. Its associations with our collections was very strong in subject matter, but not close enough to enable us to raise £50,000 or so from outside funds. Just another example, in 1987, we were offered for purchase by private treaty the letters and papers of Robert Isaac Wilberforce, son of the great abolitionist William Wilberforce. They included both sides of Robert's lifelong correspondence with his brother Samuel, Bishop of Oxford, whose papers were already in our collection. Robert's papers also included um, a lot of his father's papers, which had descended to Robert. Now, since Samuel and Robert had divided the bulk of their father's correspondence and diaries between them after they had written a biography of him in the 1830s, the argument for buying Robert's share to unite it with Samuel's was a very persuasive one when we applied to national trusts and funds. 
Perhaps it's a symptom of present times that having raised money to buy this important collection, uh, my next task as keeper was to raise money to hire someone to catalogue them. Of course, decisions to purchase are not based solely on links with existing collections and on availability of funds. Another factor, that of value for money, um, has to come in at some stage. Now, this is a very subjective uh, business. I find it a very difficult one to define. But I'm convinced that there does come a point when the market value of a manuscript can be too far above its value to scholarship for an academic and publicly funded library like the Bodleian to pursue it. For example, we have the largest single collection in public ownership of Shelley's verse and of Mendelssohn's sketchbooks, but we rarely attempt to add to these undoubted strengths when private collectors and privately funded libraries are willing and able to spend tens and thousands of pounds uh, on a single sheet in Shelley's hand or a few sketches by Mendelssohn. But on a less exalted plane, I recently decided not to buy a document relating to a disputed election in Oxford University. The content was interesting, it was relevant to our collections on the history of the university, but it was signed by Charles II, and so it was a rare item, and very reasonably priced accordingly. I mean reasonably in the sense of the collector's reasoning. In a time of severe shortage of funds, the document was not, to the library, worth the asking price. Now, of course, purchase is only one means of collection development. Fortunately for the continued growth of my department, there are still quantities of modern manuscripts outside libraries which do not have a market value or whose owners do not wish to be paid hard cash. The acquisition and cataloguing of these products of our own century are as important to scholarship as the preservation of the manuscripts we have inherited from the past. Certainly the chief growth area of, of our manuscript collections in the last 30 years has been in the papers of modern politicians, administrators, scientists, academics and writers. We've acquired them largely by gift or by deposit. Deposits are revocable and accordingly subject to carefully drafted legal agreements but have so far proved a very useful way of getting important collections into the public domain. Some gifts and deposits have been offered because the prestige of the Bodleian as an international library makes it an attractive resting place to the donor. Others have come because the university library is the obvious home for the papers of its illustrious alumni. Others again we have actively sought because they enhanced our existing holdings. Although purchase funds are not involved here, there, are still, there still has to be a strong element of selection in the acceptance of gifts and deposits. The cost of processing, preserving, storing and making available has always to be borne in mind. And the final decision here, as in purchasing, rests not only on our estimate of its archival, historical or literary importance, but also on its relevance to collections already in our care. Well, I really must stop at that point. It would be foolish to take more time now, summing up the main themes of the lecture. It's not anyway one which lends itself to a peroration. I trust that I have in some measure achieved what I set out to do, to give you an indication of what is involved in the keeping of Western manuscripts in the Bodleian, preserving the manuscripts inherited from the past, making them available to the present, and adding to them for future generations. Keeping these manuscripts, not as Dryden 
and some of the more philistine of the holders of the public purse strings would have it, a crying sin, but a vital element in the preservation of records of our past and also one of the most fascinating jobs any librarian could wish to have.